Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand how to increase the value of your business, what your company is worth, and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business and take pride in a valuable company that gives you freedom and choices to exit on your terms. Hey, everybody, and welcome back. This is the Life After Business Podcast and your host, Ryan Tansom, and we are in episode four of our Value Growth Series, and this is episode 180 of the overall Life After Business Podcast, and today we are going to be talking about sales and how to build sales teams, how to build sales forecasting and processes, and how to measure and monitor and systematize your sales division just like you would finance or operations or anything else. And the reason I'm excited about this episode is because most often or not, as we go into companies and we do the value opportunity profile and assessment of the eight functional areas, sales is one weak area and it's the bane of most owners' existence. You know, when I'm sitting in peer groups or I'm doing the presentations, finding, retaining, and hiring a top sales executive or the quote-unquote rainmaker is one of the most terrifying things for most owners because they think that they're going to ask for equity. They think that they're going to have them by the you-know-what because they're going to be bringing all the sales in. But what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be debunking and demystifying all of this stuff so that way you can have actionable takeaways and how to build out your sales function. And just as a little precursor, we're talking about people here. We're not talking about e-commerce or digital marketing. We're talking about truly sales people. And we have Gary Braun on the show today, who is the co-founder of Pivotal Advisors and a true salesperson with decades of experience. He started his career selling copiers as well. And one of his major accomplishments was at a, a big company here in town in Minnesota called Digital River. He took the company from a million dollars in revenue to over 400 million. And his brother had the same parallel journey and they were on the golf course one day and they said, you know what, what can we do to help others build out the systems and processes that we did to scale these companies? And today Gary's gonna be sharing with us the six components of a truly healthy sales organization. And 
And his framework works very similar to the five principles where if one of them is lagging, the entire department is suffering. So he's going to be talking about growth strategies and having clear and focus on the growth strategy, the people part, which is developing the right people, processes, and what are the different processes that are helping doing the right work for the right people, measurement, all the different KPIs and how to measure what matters, and then rewards and recognitions, which is comp plans and making sure that you're rewarding the performance correctly, and then execution and how to actually make it happen. And one of the big premises is that he argues that sales leaders haven't been taught or trained how to be a sales leader. And I will vouch for that because too many times I see the entrepreneur owner raise up the the rainmaker and then be make them manager, but they know how to sell. They don't know how to manage. They haven't been taught how to measure and manage these six components and then also harvest the best talent and potential out of people. It's a completely different skill set. And to loop this into what we've been talking about so far is if you think about how to grow a valuable company, you start with your strategic plan, which is where are you going, why are you doing it, and what are those choices that are your strategies? How do you build a sales forecast that is obtainable and something you can actually hit? And then how do you take Pat Hobby's understanding of the finances and his explanation in last week's episode and making sure that you're measuring the finances and the profitability in the EBITDA according to the forecast that you have confidence in. And Gary's here today to talk to us about truly how to systematize your sales department and how to train your leaders to be able to reach full potential of all the people that you have on board. So if you've ever had anxiety about hiring or maintaining your sales department, this episode is a home run and it'll hopefully reduce the anxiety and help you take actionable steps to finding the right people and then obtaining the growth that you need in order to build that valuable business. So if you have more questions or you want to dive further into this stuff, check out our two-day growth and exit bootcamp that is based on the five principles. We have two case studies on understanding how these different businesses grew the value of their company, created choices, built themselves the options that they wanted to hit all their objectives. It's two days jam-packed and you will literally walk away understanding exactly what you need to do next. If you got questions on it, reach out to me. I'm happy to walk through the agenda. Otherwise, without further ado, here is my episode with Gary Braun. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Two days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Two days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of your journey as an entrepreneur. Gary, how you doing? Doing well. I'm excited to have you on the show. Uh, you're going to be speaking on a topic that is near and dear to my heart, <laughs> how, I got, how I got my start into my entrepreneurial bug and career in sales. And I know it's one thing that is extremely painful for a lot of entrepreneurs if they did not grow up in the sales function. And I know it's one of those things where it's kind of like this big mysterious black hole. Of how do you find the, the high producers? How do you grow sales? How do you do all this stuff? So I you know, have met you through couple of our local connections here in the Twin Cities and your background, you, I think you were in the copier business as well. And you, you, had, you had some exposure. And so <laughs> you guys have done what I, what I enjoy, Gary, about what you guys have is you've built a framework around how to actually assess this. So why don't you, you know, for the listeners that are not familiar with you or Pivotal, why don't you just kind of give them the, 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 you know, the short version of the story that you told me about how you got to where you are today and then kind of the, the thought behind the framework. Okay, sure. Yeah, we... we... I myself am a lifelong sales guy, just like you. Uh, started in the copier business, brutal job, banging on <laughs> doors, you know, uh, 
getting chased out of buildings. I actually got chased out of a building once. Yeah. Um, <laughs> did that though. Lifelong sales guy. First job out of school. Uh, sold copiers. Then I sold desktop publishing equipment for a period of time. I sold high-end servers and storage and networking gear to Fortune 1000 companies. Uh, got on with a startup at the time, uh, e-commerce company. When I started, I was the 23rd employee and we were a million dollars big in revenue. And when I left 11 years later, we were $400 million and 1,400 employees across the globe. And that's where we learned a lot about how do you scale a business? So how do I get the things in place where I can take an average, you know, a B player or a C player off the street? And if they work the system and they you know run the playbook, then they can be successful. And while I was in that tremendous growth spurt with that last company, my brother called me up and he said, uh, hey, we always wanted to work together. So what do you want to do? And I was traveling like a madman. And I said, sure, I'm, I'm ready to get off the hamster wheel. And we, we started this thing and his company had gone from 75 million to a billion. So he had the same type of a hyper growth. And we really focused on what did we do? What types of systems and processes did we put in place that allowed our companies to scale? Because too many companies get to a certain point and they can't figure out how to grow anymore. Well, and and on that note too, Gary, there's a, you know this whole growth consumes capital. And if you're business model, you can actually mm-hmm. grow yourself out of business, which a lot of people do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we see, we see that a lot of times. So we came back and we scribbled on a whiteboard and said, well, what were all the things that we had to do? And what what is a really, quote, healthy sales organization. And we kind of came up with six different areas. And we said, if we had that in all of our companies, boy, would they just take off. So we, we took it to market and tried it with a few of our different clients and it's worked. And here we are 250 clients later over that, probably closer to 300 now, but applying the, these six factors. And, and it kind of boils down to, do we have a growth strategy? I can't tell you, Ryan, how many times you go into a place and say, you know, we, they want to grow 15% a year over five years. They're going to double. And, and that's how it works. And we ask them how, and I get this blank puzzled look <laughs> back and they're not sure if it's going to come from current clients or new clients or new industries or new products, or there's no strategy there. And then when I ask them further, well, why you guys versus your competitor? I hear back awesome things like, well, we really care about our customer and we have awesome customer service and we have really good people. And everybody says the same thing. So they're not, that that's the table stake of being in business, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. But that's, that's what their people are out there selling is, you know, I don't have a strategy and I'm not differentiated. And even like my ideal client, I'll chase anything and everything that moves and can fog a mirror, <laughs> they're, they're a prospect. And, and that doesn't give you the best chance to win. That's awesome. When you're a new business, because you need any business to get going. Yep. But at some point, your winning percentage goes up much higher with some subset of clients, and we help them figure out what that is. So that's all in strategy. We go to, do we have the right people? Do we know how to hire the right people and onboard them? That's the people section. We have go down to process and say, is there a repeatable sales process? We go into a lot of companies and we ask the top guys, you know, how do you find them, get in the door, generate interest, close them, etc. And some of them know it, but some of them are this unconscious competence that they don't even know. And then I ask the bottom performers and it doesn't even sound remotely the same. So how do we get this into a repeatable process that everybody can do? Mm-hmm. The fourth one is we move to measurement. Everybody measures sales. That's really easy, but so many companies don't measure the things that lead to sales. You know, whether it's number of meetings or number of opportunities, or if you're inside sales, it's number of phone calls or 
you know, whatever it happens to be, but let's set some standards around those measurements and hold people to those. Because if we measure the activity on the front end, we're going to get the stuff on the back end. Uh, the fifth one was how do we reward people? So pay is obvious one and making sure that's aligned with strategy. Uh, but there's a lot of just basic stuff you can do to recognize people, promote competition, sit down and talk with them about not just the deal of the day or the issue of the day, but you sit down and talk with them about, Ryan, you were supposed to have five new opportunities this week. We've been averaging three. So if we stay on this pace, we'll never hit our goal. What do we need to do differently? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That alone, or recognize you because you hit six, way to go, keep that going. Mm-hmm. But just that alone can drive performance. And then the last one we call is uh, execution. And that's, what is our system for managing all this? Often do we sit down as a team and what do we do to make that uh, a valuable meeting? Often do we do one-on-ones and what do we do there? How often are we in the field actually coaching? What does our planning look like? You know, it's our system for how we manage it. And then the big thing that we found when we sat and scribbled this all out, you know, what, 11, 12 years ago was the person who is responsible to do all of this stuff is the sales leader. And I would say well over 90% of them have never been trained on any of this stuff. <laughs> they were really so good true. sellers. And I don't know about you, you know, you got to imagine, but I know when I stepped in, <laughs> nobody taught me how to hire or train or coach or set a strategy or develop a comp plan, but I was a good seller. So they promoted me and now I'm magically supposed to know how to do all of this stuff. It's so funny, Gary. I think you and I were talking about that. We're like, cause I, that I, it was to this day, my least favorite job I've ever done was being a sales manager because <laughs> You know that so many you hear this so many times where they they, they take the the great performer and then they make them a manager, but the the great that the, those skill sets are almost never correlated. And like no, and like I remember just thinking, well, I just woke up and did my phone calls. How come you can't? And like that's not training, and and like that's not how you lead people. And so yeah, there's a there's a there's a huge gap between performing and actually being a leader. Yeah, well, and if you look at it, if you, if you're a good salesperson, you know how to identify your prospects, you know how to generate interest, get in the door, you know how to ask great questions, you know how to close, you know, none of that is being a sales leader. (laughs) None of that is how do I hire, train, communicate, hold people accountable, have a difficult conversation. They're they're not even the same thing, but we keep promoting our top person and then they don't work out and we go, well, that was a bad thing to do. And we fire them and then we promote our next top person. And we keep doing this <laughs> so now we're going to get into how the heck do we stop doing that? How do we build a, a, a good team? So like, I'll kind of tee this up a couple of different things. One is that maybe you can describe what Pivotal does and how you guys go about using this sure. framework for clients. So that way, you know, you know, with 300 clients, that brings you a lot of rep, uh, a lot of exposure that gives you some good experience to be able to to yeah. give this um, feedback, and then maybe along those lines, Gary, maybe explain in your definition of what sales is in your world, because I think there's this blending of sales and marketing, and like especially uh-huh. you know for someone that may or may not you know on the spectrum of what sales is, you know mm-hmm. I came in from a world where. Like that's the whole organization start with my dad just cold calling, right? I mean, it was like 400 appointments or 400 phone calls, 15 appointments, five proposals, three closes, 50 grand a month. I mean, it just, it was from day one, whereas an organization that might've been built off of an engineer or project manager or something like that, that doesn't have an understanding what sales is. So maybe does that make sense? Pivotal and then kind of what sales is. Yeah. So, um, We'll start with kind of the difference between sales and marketing. So I, I really see marketing as being, um, and, and by the way, these two should be in lockstep with each other. 
but I see marketing as really determining what is the brand, what is the messaging, uh, who are we going after, what does that target audience look like, how do we generate interest in our products, how do we establish who we are. And, and some of that really crosses into sales because sales also has to be really good at our messaging and, and making sure we're going after the right targets and that our, our uh, differentiation is clear mm-hmm. and whatnot. But I really see marketing as establishing who we are and who we're going after, and then sales as executing on that. Mm-hmm. You know, you get the lead or you generate your own lead, and now it's uh, leveraging some of the marketing materials, but you're using all that to actually close the business. Right. And, and I, I just a little comment on that too, because you, you and I were talking about you guys are working on podcasting as well. or like, yeah, marketing you creates a digital asset, right? So it's a, either a yeah. podcast or a webinar. So, but then there's got to be gener- like interest generated to that. So there's like the digital assets and the brand and all that stuff, but there's still got to be people behind the scenes working working the deal. Yeah, and and I would say as technology progresses and as social and digital and everything else progresses, they're blending a heck of a lot more, and they're coming together. And I've heard the term marketing several times, where they're you know they're kind of mm-hmm. mashing together. But at the same time, I would say that um, the more complex your product is, the more it needs explanation, the more expensive it is for sure. You need sales to create that value, to create that differentiation, to really dig into a person's needs. There's not a marketing piece I've seen anywhere that can really ask a lot of really good questions about what do you need? Why do you need that? Have you thought about this? What if you had that? What impact would it have on you? There's not marketing that does that. That's the job of a salesperson. Well, and maybe as a, one last little note on this too, and this might open it up to like the different types of industries and your kind of ideal clientele too, because so like I was at a, an online digital uh, marketing well, it was, it was online entrepreneurs. It was a conference, uh, 140 entrepreneurs, e-commerce, SaaS companies, that kind of stuff. Where they, you know, there's people in there that they're spending 10 grand a day on Facebook ads because they got everything built out from the client acquisition cost to how they're doing all that stuff. But like, it's you know, business to consumer, and they're selling sunglasses, right? I mean, and right. it's Amazon, so they it's an Amazon store or an e-commerce thing where there it's might not be as applicable to the sales world that we're talking about. There might be more customer right. service or something like that. So maybe, given that, like you know, the digital marketing world has grown, and I think a lot of people use that as a way to avoid the conversation we're about to have today, <laughs> yeah. because you know, there's so what what industries is this applicable to? Size companies and and what does the kind of the sales function look like? Yeah, um, we apply it mostly to B2B. So if you're selling sunglasses, you're selling, you know, tchotchkes, whatever you're selling online mm-hmm. to consumers, that is, I think that is a lot more of a marketing play. Mm-hmm. I mean, even when you go buy a car today, largely that's taken care of. They, you can go online, you can watch videos, you can read reviews, you can do all that. And the price is even established for that matter yep, in a lot yep, of cases. So yep. that's more of a marketing play. When you're selling something that can help a business make money, save money, avoid risk, be more efficient or whatnot, and that ex- requires a lot more interaction and question asking and evaluation of needs and all the rest of that, that's where it really plays. So I see it in mm-hmm. manufacturing, technology, software, SaaS type of uh, environments, professional services is another one because you're selling yourself as a, a solution, mm-hmm. whether you're an accountant or an architect or a banker or whatever else, that's 
that's selling. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those people don't consider themselves salespeople. Uh, they don't even like the word sales. They like BD or business development. It's the same <laughs> or thing. vice president. Every banker is a vice president, right? Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. We actually worked with an accountant once and they said, you can't use the word sales in here. If you're going to come in here and you got to talk about what we're going to do, it's not sales. And I talked to the accountants and they said, no, we don't like to sell. I said, do you have products or services or offerings that you do that can help other people? Yes. Do they need those? Yes. So if you explain it to them and you help them, guess what? You're in sales. <laughs> that, that's what selling is. Yeah. Daniel Pink, to sell is to be human. You're, you're selling, like, I have to sell my, to my wife why I'm able to go out with my friends and leave the, and leave, <laughs> and leave the family. That, that might be the hardest sale ever, but it's still... Yeah. It's still, still <laughs> yeah. You, want, you want to see a good salesperson? <laughs> When your kids want something, they are awesome salespeople, <laughs> the most tenacious people in the world. I uh, love it. So, so explain how then you take okay, what, what you're just describing and what does the sale, typical sales department look like and what is it that you guys are doing to help uh, the, the owners and the, and the companies get to, to, to scale effect, effectively? Like yeah. I said. yeah. So you know, I, I, I look at the start of a company. We call it like the infant stage or, or the go, go-go stage. And basically in those companies... Everybody sells. Everybody does everything. I might mm-hmm. send out an email. I might actually do a demo. I might actually close the deal. And then I sh- will run to the back and I ship it out and I do everything. And people wear lots of hats and they do all kinds of stuff. And that works for a lot of companies for a certain period of time. And, and usually in those cases, the uh, president or CEO or owner is the sales leader and the salesperson and everything else. And they run a small team. At some point, that doesn't scale anymore. You need to get mm-hmm. some specialization. That's usually when we bring in a sales leader to run that team. And the, you know, the CEO goes and does CEO stuff, sets strategy and manages ads, admin and finance and whatnot. But at some point, you have a sales team and you have a sales leader. And now we're focused on different types of things to go after. And that, that's really where we play is when companies try to get past that, I need to grow, I need to scale. Yep. Now I need a repeatable sales process in place. I need to make sure that salespeople have a plan for how they're going to get there. I, I want to make sure my comp plan lines up with that strategy because too many comp plans are, I'm going to pay you 5% on everything you sell. Well, that just told the salesperson, sell anything and everything to anybody you want. And that might not the margins. Yeah, right. And that might not even be what our strategy is. So you know, if our strategy is go get new customers, that's what we want you to focus on. Well, great. I'm going to pay you a higher percentage on those new customers than existing customers. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's all kinds of complexity there. Mm-hmm. When we get involved, a lot of these companies have bumped up against that ceiling. They got to a certain point. Maybe they even have sales leaders in there, but they can't figure out how to scale. They can't have, figure out how to get past you know one or two top salespeople doing most of the revenue for the team. Mm-hmm. So, when we get in there, um, those six areas I mentioned before, we evaluate what's in place. Maybe they have an awesome strategy, but they don't have a sales process. Maybe they have both of those things, but our account plan's messed up. Maybe there's no accountability. Maybe the strategy is getting lost from CEO's head down to what we're actually executing on the street. Mm-hmm. Usually the things that we see when companies get stuck is they try to, quote, fix sales and they will fire the sales leader. That's the number one thing they go to. By the way, random fact, average tenure of a new sales leader, 20 months. They get pretty, really? yeah, 20 months. They get pretty impatient with the sales leader and they boot them out and then they promote somebody and they just do the cycle over and over again. 
Well, it, that's so interesting to you because like, you know, and when you and I were sitting down having coffee, this, as this ties into even my world of value creation and making a valuable company, I mean, literally repeatable sales process will increase the value of your company, period. And so the, 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 the thing is what I see is like when the owners uh, and they're sitting there going, okay, I need, when they, when they don't understand value creation, they, 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 they beg for revenue. Right, so it's all these quick fixes to get more revenue with a lot of like, and I can't imagine the the pressure that you you probably have to be pretty selective. Someone that understands it that they're just not they're just not just grabbing for revenue to you know essentially be juggling more cash flow, which is you know essentially what happens. So that I can make sense why you got a sales leader that <laughs> they're not hitting their goals. It's just whack it and figure it out. And yep, must be the wrong people hired, made a bad sales leader choice, made set bad sales people. So that's a fix. Uh, they like to send people to sales training because now that's a multi-billion dollar a year industry. But um, being kind of a smart aleck, I always ask the CEO, so have you ever invested in sales training before? Oh, sure. And when I say, and right after that, sales just took off, right? It just skyrocketed. And they were <laughs> like, no. Well, I think there's a lot of really good sales training out there, but the sales leader who's supposed to reinforce it is learning at the same time as everybody else. And they're yep. supposed to be the experts all of a sudden. We don't reinforce it. We don't coach to it. 30, 60 days later, it's back to their old habits. So that's a common fix. And then the other one is uh, we mess with their comp plan because we want to, quote, motivate them. And uh, <laughs> Which, you want to piss off a group of people, do that. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Mess with them. Uh, and sales, people are so, sales people are so funny anyway because you, you get to this... Uh, <laughs> This point where you say, I'm going to change the plan, and they're completely ticked off. And they say, you're trying to screw me over, and you're trying to take money, and blah, blah, blah. And they'll do that for about six months. And then they'll say, don't change the comp plan. Because now they like the comp plan because they figured out how to play the comp plan. Yeah. (laughs) But but that's a funny thing. You're right. You you, you make people upset. Those three things, again, firing, um, sales training, and comp plan, they're never the answer. It's never one thing. So back to you, one of your original questions, what do we do? We go in there and we figure out what's in place and what's not. Uh, strategy, do we have good strategy? Are we differentiated? Do we have the right people on the team? Do we know how to hire the right people? Is there a repeatable sales process? Are we measuring, et cetera, et cetera, all those things I talked about before. And we find out what's in place and what's not in place. And then we work. I'll do a couple different things. Most of the time, the clients that we have have a sales leader. We work one-on-one with that sales leader to close those gaps. Maybe they don't have good accountability. Maybe they don't have a repeatable sales process. Maybe they're not a good coach. That happens mm-hmm. a lot. We ask, by the way, if you ask sales leaders, 100% of them say that they're awesome coaches. <laughs> and, and, and then we listen to them and you know, we'll see a one-on-one and they'll go, okay, Ryan, well, this deal's going sideways. So you should do this and then do that and then call this guy and then come back to me and tell me what's going on. That's yeah. not coaching. That's or, telling or, what to do. Or how many sales leaders do you have it where they they grab every monkey for oh, yeah. their for their reps? Just bring me out on the deal. Bring me out on the deal. Oh, and yeah. essentially, the sales manager just has like essentially ten worker bees around them and just playing whack a mole. <laughs> if I'm completely honest with myself, that was my first sales leadership role. I mean, yeah. that's exactly what I did. That's exactly I got what promoted. I did too. Everybody teed them up. I knocked them down. I thought it was the funnest job in the world <laughs> until I burned myself out uh-huh. and we weren't growing. And not until I got help and said, I can't do it. I got to make them good so they don't need me. That's when we really started mm-hmm. making some, some progress. But you're so, right. That's exactly what happened. So 
Yeah. And what I, a couple of things that I want to do is as we kind of, cause we could peel apart all these different six factors, but maybe what I'd like to do, Gary, is like, as I, like one of the biggest things that I will, as we walk into our clients or they're, they're walking out of the boot camp, we're talking about this specific value driver is it either scares the living shit out of them because they weren't a salesperson. They don't know how to mm-hmm. hire salespeople. And it's almost the equivalent back 10 years ago when, when I was trying to hire a CFO and I didn't know anything about numbers. <laughs> so you, like, right. you, know, you don't know how to hire the other person. However, in, in, our, in our philosophy, you have to have all these eight key drivers in balance to effectively grow profitably and to, to grow the value of your company. So then you know, one of the things that I, we, we really challenge our listeners and our clients to do is if you're folk, instead of solving for annual income and you know pulling as much money out of the company, you know between salary distribution and perks, and then f- flipping that and focusing on value creation, which means you yeah. have to invest in your business to do these kind of things. You have to decouple yourself because a lot of the owners or they they have these people that they're trying to get as much sales with as little investment as possible, which. Right. If you can decouple that, then you say, okay, well then where, where, where do you invest in these gaps like you're talking about? Because you're going to increase the value of your company and significantly by creating a repeatable sales process. So then if you know, maybe it's you or your brother, what is a good, like, what is like the, a machine look like to you? Like what would a day or a week or like from an owner's perspective, what does it feel like and what does it consist of? And then we can maybe go into some of the, the major common things that you see that are ways to get there. Yeah. So if I see a really good sales organization, everybody knows who we're aimed at. We're all chasing the right target market. We've defined it and we all target. We're all chasing that. So we're not chasing the one-off. This could be huge kind of stuff, but you know, we're chasing our target market. <laughs> yeah. We all have a consistent message. Um, we know how to differentiate. We know how to leverage what our differentiation is. We have good people systems. And we can go down that yeah, hole in yeah. a second, but we don't just hire somebody because they came from the industry and they have a good track record. And by the way, they're oh my gosh, well. Oh my but gosh, yes. <laughs> and, and even if we do hire well, we have good onboarding systems to get them up to speed. You've mentioned repeatable sales process a bunch of times, and, and I, I love that. That's a piece of it. But we all have a similar methodology for how do we get in the door? What questions do we ask? How do we move them along the process? I don't leave a step in the process until I've completed that part of the process. Too often, you'll get a less experienced rep who we start talking. You say, that's really cool. How much is it? Can you give me a proposal? And we go, sure. And we just jump right over that part. And we lost all our ability to differentiate and build value and everything. Every salesperson has a plan for how they're going to hit their number. If you have a $2 million quota, it's not, I'm going to work hard. It's here's much as, how much is coming from my current clients. I need to find these five new clients that are going to average this much. Based on that, I need to generate this many opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. They have a plan. We have a, a comp plan that aligns with whatever strategy we're driving. And we've got a leader, keeps people accountable and develops them so the leader doesn't need to be on everything. And if you've got that, you're not reliant on just a couple salespeople at the top. Everybody knows how to execute. They're, running, they're all running the same plan. That's a healthy sales organization. Yeah. And I can just feel the breath of fresh air. It would be like to, to have that as in your organization. So if you got, you know, I, and I don't know, Gary, with all the different industries that you've been a part of, and I've same thing like you listed, I've, we're professional services, e-commerce, manufacturing, but like the whole works, right? 
I came up in a world where sales was the driving factor, right? But then if you go into the you know manufacturing, it might be like they're really good at their systems and their operations and lean manufacturing or whatever. And the owner's going, whatever you guys just talked about, Ryan and Gary, it scares the living shit out of me. I don't even know how to hire these people, right? They don't even know where to start because someone that is... So maybe you talk about like how you get with the people thing. They They get like this, you know the unicorn and then they think they're going to want equity right away or they're going to like you know they're going to be impossible to rein in because it's going to be the loose cannon that's selling how do you how do you does that make sense to you to, yeah, to like it curb so, that um, i i want to address one other thing you said and then i'll jump into the people part okay. so yeah, yeah. it amazes me we, we go ask these ceos or these owners all the time tell me about manufacturing and is there a process oh yeah there's a process and here's how it is it's all written down <laughs> Do you deviate from the press? Oh my God, no, we don't deviate from the press. And how do you measure it? Oh, we've got these measures and we know if these <laughs> metrics are on target. And, and we train people on it and we hire people who know how to do these particular things in the operation. That's phenomenal. Then we'll ask about finance and they'll say all the same things. Then we'll ask about logistics and they'll say all the same things. Then we'll ask about sales and they'll go, I don't have a clue. <laughs> it's the same stuff. I'm, I'm, it is the same stuff. There's a process, there's measurement, there's coaching, there's accountability. We don't deviate from it. So when we framed it up like that for some owners, they're like, oh, it's starting to make sense. And then we show them what those processes look like. Mm-hmm. So, so hopefully for your listeners, that's helpful to think about sales is just like operations or manufacturing or finance or anything else. I was going to say one, co- one comment on that, and then I want to get into your people part is, so I read this book. I don't know if, uh, if you're familiar uh, with Jeb Blunt from Sales Gravy. He's got The Fanatical Prospector, and he's got this one called Objections. And you know what I find really interesting about like sales in general is that all those different departments that you listed are, have very repeatable processes, and they're very yep. technical, but like... Yep rejection is not necessarily a part of it. And as humans, our egos are so much in control most of the time. And we all hate getting rejected and we all hate not getting the affirmation. And in sales, you get the shit kicked out of you every single day and you have to be okay being called an idiot. And so like, I think so many people just stay away from it, which is why I've seen so many people spend too much money in digital marketing to avoid talking to people and getting rejected. It's a lot, yeah. it's a, it's like this mystical like maybe we'll get sales without having to deal with that. So how do you does that make sense? I don't know if that ties into your people part of how you address that and maybe it's the maybe the type of people that you're hiring or you know so from an industry that might not be used to having in-person sales leaders. Yeah, I think it ties more to sales process. It's, you know, with any given company in any given industry, there's probably five or six common objections that come up all the time. And if you know what they are and you know what your answer is to that, and we've trained on it, and I'm a big fan of heading off those objections before they even come up. If you know that somebody's going to ask you about, I don't know, price or something else, you talk about it up front so it doesn't come up later. Mm-hmm. And you qualify it on the front end. And if you know that they're going to ask you about I'm making stuff up your, your, your warranty or whatnot, you talk about the warranty before they talk about it. But that's just part of the process. Yep, yep. I, I think any decent salesperson, if you teach them what are the most common objections that come up and how do you answer them and how do you head them off, that's all part of the sales process. I think anybody can get past mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. When it comes to people, I just had this discussion about a week and a half ago, and I had a bunch of CEOs in the room, and I've done this a number of times. And I asked them, when you look to hire a really good salesperson, what do you look for? What skills, traits, attributes, what do you look for? And I hear things back like, well, 
They have to be really motivated. They have to be good at asking questions. They have to be a good communicator. They're a good people people. You know, they're great at relationships. Um, they're, they're motivated by money. And I hear all of these things over and over again. I go, and that's what you interview for. Yep. Yep. If they have all those things, that's great. I'm like, if you don't have those, you shouldn't be in sales in the first place. That's, that's <laughs> anti. That's table stakes to be even in the game. Yeah. But that's where a lot of the, criteria ends that yeah, and very oh point. by the way they should come from my industry and they had a good track record in the interview well yeah and they, were, they were and they were working with all my all the customers that i want <laughs> right yeah right and by the way none of those you know a very small percentage of those customers ever make it across to you anyway totally yep when we help them hire people we say let's go beyond that yes they should have all those things interview for all those things they're very important they got to fit your culture and everything else that's really important but then i go they say is this person going to be working with current clients or new clients, chasing new clients? Because that's a different skill set. To work with a current client and look for that next opportunity and maintain that relationship and try to expand that is way different than I got to go find a company. I got to figure out who the decision makers are. I have to figure out how to get in the door. I have to maybe displace a competitor. Those are different skill sets. Totally. So which one of those do you need? And they're like, oh, that's interesting. I think I need the hunter said, okay, are we selling to big companies where there's five to 10 decision makers and influencers on the other side? And I got to figure out who they all are and navigate to them and figure out what each person wants and align that. Or am I selling to the purchasing person or the owner? And that's one person. Because that's a whole different sales process and a whole different set of skills. Am I selling the premium product where I have to be able to justify why we are much more expensive, how you're going to get your ROI, why we're different, why you need those differentiators, or am I the cheap guy? Because I've hired the cheap guy before when I was the premium, that didn't work out so well. Mm -hmm. Every deal he brought me, if we could just discount boss, no, that didn't work. (laughs) It it totally is. How about like even Uh, solutions versus products? Yeah, absolutely true. Uh, One of my favorites was, um, are you a lead generator? Because, you know, they want... I had one company said, I, I need a hunter. Our strategy says we need to add on X amount of new logos per year. We have this finalist. Will you interview him for me? I said, sure. So I went out there and I'm interviewing this guy and his resume was stellar. It said he led his company in new revenue every year, led his company in number of new accounts every year, went to President's Club, yada, yada, yada. And I sat him down and uh, we call this behavioral interviewing, but I focused on a particular skill and asked a bunch of questions around that. And I said, so this is really impressive. Tell me, how do you even decide who you're going to go chase? And what does your target market look like? How have you been successful doing that? And his answer was, I assume there's leads. (laughs) And I said, nope, nope, there's no leads here. It's not a big marketing engine. You have to go find your own. So what would you do? He says, well, I've got a really big network and I'm on LinkedIn. So I would go to everybody who's I'm connected to on LinkedIn and then everybody they're connected to. I said, that's awesome. We call that the friends and family network. Kind of runs out after about 60 to 90 days. So then what would you do? Uh, I I would start looking for a new job, right? (laughs) Yeah, nothing. He had nothing. So if he would have been in an organization that had a good marketing engine providing leads, he would have been awesome. Mm -hmm. Not this company. And they were ready to hire this guy. And then I shared this feedback and they're like, oh my God, no. So, you know, a particular skill that we needed was your ability to generate your own leads. Mm-hmm. A particular skill might be selling to big companies or small companies. The skill is selling premium. Skill might be selling direct or selling to a channel because that's mm-hmm. a different skill set. If I'm selling to resellers or distributors or partners, 
That's way different. I need to stay top of mind. I need to drive accountability. I need to be a good coach or a trainer. I need to go on calls with them. If I'm selling direct, I don't need any of that. I just yeah, need to totally do it myself. Yep. So, and, and that list probably goes on 50 deep. But we try to zero in on what are the specific skills we need for your company for this particular role. And when we nail it down to the four or five that are most important to them, and then we set up our interview process around that, kind of like I did with the guy who's the supposed mm-hmm. doctor, boy, you, your, your batting average goes way up. Well, and that it's so, I mean, I can't. I put an asterisk on everything that you just said or an exclamation point because it's just like, it's so important. And I see like we had a client recently where like it was, they were essentially manufacturers rep. So they were again, selling to resellers. And mm-hmm. I was like, there's no way he's going to go and hunt. He likes to, and this gentleman in particular, I'm like, he likes to hide most of the time. You can just tell like, I'm like, you, you, there's going to be nowhere to hide. And then I don't know even where you, maybe this is a good into the systems part too. I think also depending on who you're hiring, well, it will impact based on the systems that you have in place. Cause like the biggest problem that we always had, and, the, and then I want to make sure we uh, put a pin in this or, or, and talk about finance and how this all ties to comp plan and the numbers. But like, you know, if you have a major account rep or someone that's supposed to be out, you know, bird dogging it up, like make sure that they're out in front of people instead of like, we had this antiquated quoting process, Gary, when I started, I was like, you have people that are getting paid 150 grand and they're sitting in front of the spreadsheets and they still screw all the the stuff up. (laughs) So, so I don't know how like the infrastructure and how you hold those kind of people accountable and then how you get them out. How do you balance the people and then the systems? Yeah, it's a great question. It's different for every company. And, you know, you made me think of one of our clients, we went in there and they had some really, really good hunters. But the the way they were structured was I hunt them, I find them, I bring them in. They're part of my quote book of business. Mm -hmm. And then I find more and I build and I build. And pretty soon their best hunters had such a big book of business that Mm -hmm. they had to service all the time. They had absolutely no time to go out and hunt anymore. Totally see that all the time. And we said, Okay, that worked for a period of time, and that was a really good thing to do. You're to the point where you need to start branching off hunters versus account managers. Mm-hmm. So let's keep some small base of account or of accounts for yourself, but that's going to free up time to go hunt. Of course, we had to fix comp because they're all worried that we're taking away their money and their accounts and they're losing <laughs> money. Yeah. So we we fixed comp, so we made them pull on that, but we started a whole new division to say. You're going to work with existing accounts. We got another um, another client of ours who said, "We want you constantly hunting." So every year, and each person had probably twenty accounts. They got to name the twelve accounts I get to keep, and you have to shed eight, mm-hmm. and then that's going to free you up to go find new ones. And every year, they kind of just did this exercise. So the salesperson was constantly evaluating their accounts, passing off the ones that were probably maxed out um, and kept the, the core ones that they could still grow up, and but they always had to hunt, and that kept them doing just that. Yeah, that's so, fantastic. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 it really depends on where they're at and, and what their strategy is and what they're trying to get done, but there's several different approaches to fix that. Well, and I think what happened, yeah, in that comp is a big one, and so like maybe as we tie, you know, um, uh, unpack the comp and finances, I'll, I'll kind of maybe set some of this, the foundation of what I learned over the years and what I've seen with our clients is that the comp is just made up randomly. And I think you'll be able to expand on that. And it doesn't tie to the strategic plan and the company finances. So like what we encourage is, okay, if your EBITDA that you're trying to hit is this, 
And then you say, okay, well, well how do we want to get that EBITDA a combination of new clients, current clients, different products and services? Like when you wrap all your stuff together with what we're doing and saying, okay, you, if you want to mitigate your client concentration, sell outside of target. Sell out, you know, don't try, don't go get more target because there's a direct correlation between yeah. client diversification and value and products and services. So like when we were trying to build up manage IT, you just, you can, so you can take your big strategic plan and then it all boils down to the numbers too. So you say, okay, well, we want each of these divisions to be doing half a million in EBITDA to get to our 1.5 or 2 million or yep. whatever. So tying the numbers in and then layering on the comp plan. So maybe explain that correlation, some exercise, because I, I, too many times, like, I mean, I came from the copy world, right, Gary? Like, all the comp plans are based on revenue. I'm like, we're losing money. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the rep made 200 grand, but the company didn't get any of the profits. So, like, right. kind of explain how you see that and what, what I mean, there's probably a lot well, of we, we, there. we can go for two days straight. On, <laughs> I was just going to say, I, mean, I don't know. If I, <laughs> there, there's a lot, there, that's a lot of options. Stuff. 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 <laughs> yeah, there, there really is. Um, and there's a thousand ways to develop complex, but I, I like where you started is what are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to achieve growth from existing? Are we trying to go chase new? Um, are you tasking your reps with doing both, which might be different skill sets, by the way, and we might need to break those apart, but how do we tie it together? And just by way of example, you know, if you wanted your reps to spend 70% of their time on chasing new and 30% of their time on existing, your commission rate should reflect that. Your commission rate should say you're going to spend over, you're going to get twice as much commission rate, a little bit more than twice as much when you land a new one, because you want that to be aligned. Anybody looking at a comp plan should know immediately how they're going to max it out and where they should spend their time. And that should be aligned with what your strategy is. Mm -hmm. Now, your, your example of, I could sell it and it's based on revenue, but the company's not making any money. That's a very valid thing. Uh, the flip side of that is how much can they control? Because there's a lot of times like in point. Yep. software development or IT or whatnot, where the ultimate profitability of any deal is outside of the salesperson's yeah. control. Yeah, very, very good point. So there are flip sides. My, my rule of thumb is if they have control over gross margin and they have control over pricing, by God, then we align that comp plan with their discount. So mm -hmm. if they're discounting, it's hurting them just as bad. Yep. And there's a whole bunch of different sliding scale types of things that you can do on there. But if you have pretty fixed pricing, you know, the price is the price, pay them on top line. That, that mm -hmm. makes perfect mm -hmm. sense as well. And you can pay them based on a, a percentage of sales. You can do it on quota attainment or, you know, cut-ins when they get close. You can do it just on growth. You know, I, I go back to my e-commerce days. Uh, my team chased all the new ones and we got a percentage of sales over the first year that that company was with us. And that percentage of sales ratcheted down each quarter. So by mm -hmm. the end of it, they weren't making much off of that mm -hmm. because they weren't that involved with that client anymore anyway. Mm -hmm. So it was very aligned with their activities. However, the team we handed it off to, the account development team, they got paid just on the growth because that was what their job was. So if a company mm -hmm. came in and they were doing $100,000 a year with us and next year they still did $100,000, they didn't make anything off of that. Mm -hmm. But if they went from one hundred to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, they got paid on that fifty thousand dollar delta. Mm -hmm. So that was aligned with what they were trying to do. That's the biggest thing. And I see too many companies where it's been this literally been the same comp plan for ten to fifteen years. We've never changed it. We always paid you know people three and a half percent of whatever they sold. Strategies changed twelve times there, but we've never changed the comp plan. Yep. Or the flip side of that is I see 
the CEO really trying to motivate people and they change the comp plan multiple times a year. And if you got, if you have a nine month sales cycle, for example, and your comp plan changes twice a year, you're not driving any behavior whatsoever. You're, you're penalizing them because when you change the comp plan, I might be two months away from closing this deal. And now my comp plan just changed on that. And back to your way earlier point, that really pisses off the salespeople. Well, and, and it's like, it, and it's the analogy is very similar to even if you layer it up to the business owners that are listening. Like the spending is already decreasing because people don't know who the next president's going to be. But if they don't mm-hmm. know, if, if people in general don't know what game they're playing, they just are not as motivated because you don't know how to right. win. <laughs> so right. it's, it's the same. And I, you know, in that light, Gary, I don't know what your experience is with like and how finance. And sales work together from the comp plans. And maybe to set some context behind that is, you know, you can do probably endless amounts of things with the comp plan, but having good numbers and good data behind the scenes to actually prove the fact that you made some money or not. Like, cause like, you know, on the top line, I totally agree with that because manage IT we did, but it was up for the company to be able to make money, to be able to record the numbers and so I just, you know, I, I, I too often see very elementary books, even for, you know, eight-figure companies where they can't even provide the data from the finance department to the sales department. Yeah, I I see the same thing. And I like booking on results. And I like, I'll say, reliable data that everybody agrees upon. Um, And and if you can get at that and you make the the plan very simple, then it can align with the behavior you're trying to drive. If it gets too complex... And there's 18 different mechanisms and, and you know, it depends on this. And then we figure we back this out and we add this back in. Pretty soon the sales guy, I have talked to so many salespeople. I say, how do you know what you're getting paid each month? And they said, I have no idea. It shows mm-hmm. up. I assume it's right. I'm not happy with it. But why even have a comp plan if that's what yeah. it's going to do? Because yeah. it just, I'll back to my earlier statement. A, a salesperson should be able to look at the comp plan in one or two minutes say, oh, this is how I make my money. And and that's how it drives. <laughs> when I started, ours used to be so complicated that everybody would say all the stars and the moons have to align. <laughs> oh, yeah. And like, but you know, we had some really smart reps that would literally figure out how to do it. And you're just like, oh my gosh, the fact that you understood, that means you have like a PhD in finance. <laughs> <laughs> but like, then, then you realize that the company got hosed at the end of it. And you go, well, the sales rep's really smart. The complaint's too complicated and they're smarter than us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then and then you get the ones that uh, well, I'm not going to pay you until we get collected. And by the way, um, which you just turn all of your salespeople into a collection department. They're not selling anymore. They're making sure they get collected on stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, we get paid on the actual profit at the end of it. By the way, you have no control over what we do on the back end. So now you just turn all your salespeople into little mini controllers running around saying, "Well, we should cut costs on this and that." The other, make it easy. Make it over something that they can control and. Like I said, it should be really simple and give immediate direction on what on how they make their money. So yeah, the you, other thing I want to say yeah, too yeah. is tie it to a goal. Because too often I, I've seen companies that say I'm paying you X percent. I mean, maybe they even divide it up X percent on this and Y percent on that. Mm-hmm. And go max it out. Now I created my budget assuming that X percent of my people are going to be on goal. But if they say, you know what, I'm at 75% of the goal, but I'm good with the money I'm making, well, that doesn't line up with company strategy at all. Right. So we like plans that say when you get to 75% of goal, then your accelerator kicks in. Some mm-hmm. some comp plans don't pay any commission until you reach 75% of goal. And then from 75 to 85%, I make this much. And from 85 to 100, I make more. And then if I go over 100, I make even more yet. All of a sudden, hitting those cut-ins 
become much more desirable for everybody. Important, yes, yeah. to, to that salesperson. Have you ever you ever tied it to? Are you familiar with what contribution margin is? Sure. So like, you know, if the company's got the data where you can actually yeah. say, okay, well, every one of every unit or every project past this, the costs of the company are already covered. So we're making yeah. instead of 25% gross profit, we're making 80. Like yep. there's some interesting ways that you could like literally accelerate where pe- instead of sandbagging it for the next quarter to hit your quota, right. where you're getting people to get motivated to, to, to leverage that. Not a bad idea. It- if the salesperson can equate it to whatever behavior I'm doing today, if it's this abstract thing and I'm not sure how it's going to work or where the company is or where our contribution margin works, or yep, if we're over and we've completely lost any incentive at all on that. Yeah, platform. they can't figure out how, like when and how that happens. Right, right. right. It goes back to data, I mean, which yeah. is very difficult. So, yeah. It, it's kind of like a lot of these companies will say, well, I'm paying them X percent on margin. At the end of the year, I give them a discretionary bonus. And I see that in a lot of companies, and you know what? It's very generous of the owners to give a discretionary bonus, and I applaud them for if the company does well, I'm going to share the love, and I think that's all really good. It does, and if that's the intention, awesome. Mm-hmm. If the intention is to drive a behavior, it doesn't. You know, you're you're paying somebody next January for something they did in February or March or April or whatnot. And it's too separated from the actual behavior to do anything. Mm -hmm. And most of the time when we ask those people, the salespeople, what is that discretionary bonus on? What did you have to do to earn it? I would say the vast majority have no clue. They're like, I don't know. It's usually around $5,000 or $10,000. And I bank on it, by the way. Right, right. It's it's in their income calculation, and right, and it's it's it is such a frustrating part too, because like you know, with the whole data and expectations, I mean, you can literally just create more scenarios to have conflict for no reason. <laughs> like, right? You have like, okay, so now if I don't do this, Gary, you're going to be upset with me. When yep. realist, yeah, which is not the point, right? And they have yep. no control over it. So you know, for an owner that's sitting there going, okay, got it, I get it, guys. Like, I I know that I have loosey-goosey comp plans. I kind of have some account managers. I have people that have been here for a long time, like long-term relationships, and it's just kind of there. What does the process look like to go from... Because it probably gives them anxiety going, okay, we're, it's, it's going to create some disruption, right? So like, mm-hmm. what is the process that you guys go through or that you would recommend to say, okay, how do you, how do you go from that loosey-goosiness to like an actual repeatable sales process yeah. with people? Good, good question. And again, a thousand different ways to create a comp plan, but from a high level. Well, not even complaint, Gary. I'm talking like from their from their people, right? So like in their situation, like it's like almost maybe a layer up and you can answer the complaint too. But I'm just thinking like, I'm just thinking of a client in particular that'll probably be listening to this where they've kind of gone through some processes recently, but you know, there's quite a few of them where it's like, okay, I have people there. I've got people with, that are slash account managers, project managers, some kind of hunting, kind of a sales leader. Like it's all kind of just in the fray, kind of going back to your your whole six yep. factors. How do you go from there to, I know I need to do things, but I don't know how to put one, one step in one foot yeah. in front of, you, in, in front of yeah. each other. Well, let, let, let's start with the strategy. What are we trying to get done? Are, are we, are we chasing new? Are we going after new markets? Are we trying to grow existing? What are we trying to do? Is our team best structured to do that? Do we have the, the point, like I talked about earlier, where none of my hunters are hunting anymore. That mm-hmm. might be a time to look at it and divide it up. And when we decide how we're going to structure the team, 
then we get really crystal clear on defining what that role is. Your job is to go chase new. Your job is to go girl existing. Your job is to go after this new product. But we get super clear on that and we get our processes all documented so everybody knows how to do their job. And then I like to layer back in the comp plan and start with. Mm-hmm. And if they're at goal, here's a, here's a starting point we have that just, it makes all the sense in the world, but people don't think about it this way. I look at the market and say, if a person's doing a good job in my market, how much money should they make in total? Mm-hmm. And you can do market studies and you can look at competition and you can look at all kinds of stuff. And I'll just randomly say, a good salesperson's making $150,000. And you mm-hmm. go, okay, and what's their base? What's competitive in the market? $100,000. Okay, I have $50,000 to play with. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm going to start my comp plan and say, and what do I want them to do? I want them to go chase new and maybe a little existing. Okay, so I'm going to pay them twice as much on new than I am on existing. Or my job is only to grow existing accounts. Okay, I'm going to pay them on growth. But I, I use that variable to set direction in that comp plan. But mm-hmm. I always start with, what's the total? At goal, what is the total? And a lot of people have a hard time saying, I don't know, what should that be? Go do some some market research. Mm -hmm. There's studies you can get. You can go to glassdoor.com or salary.com, see what other people are being paid and whatnot. But let's start with, if somebody's producing and they're at goal, at quota, what should they make? And then you can start backing into numbers. That's awesome. And then, you know, so kind of of continue that train of thought, then is it the system? So yeah, you're kind of just... I mean, it's really just the people, the goals, and then the structure. And I mean, it, it's such a, I think what you're, the, the, the purpose of this interview is it doesn't have to be this big, huge ball of anxiety, right? I mean, especially if they don't come from sales, because there's a process behind it. Uh, I, I go back to what we said a little while ago, that it's not rocket science. It's just like your manufacturing. It's just like your operations. There's a strategy. There's a process. We're measuring the process. We have a good people systems. We have good training systems. And there's accountability. We sit down and say, okay, how are you doing? Brian, did you get your five opportunities this week? No? Okay, what do we got to do differently? Or yes? Awesome. Keep doing that. Mm -hmm. You're doing a great job. But there has to be a sit down and review of how people are doing so we can make adjustments. And too often, the only time anybody gets talked to about their actual performance, we get talked to every day about deals and, and issues and whatnot. But the only time anybody actually talks about performance is there's already an issue. Right. And, you know, and even if you're, so the kind of this ties into, as we're wrapping up here, what your company is doing and how, like, if you're even the owner and the owner's got to be managing, because like, I think that's where maybe, you know, as you're probably, it's probably maybe on the lower end of your clients, but like, if the owner's then trying to manage the sales leader, right? Because if the sales leader hasn't been trained, the owner hasn't been trained either about how to manage a sales leader. Right. So, I mean, you're sitting there being able to have these kind of collaborative conversations. So that way it's not just made up on how they're managing the sales leadership. So with that being said, maybe kind of tee it up on like that answer. And then what's the, what are some of the the resources that you've got available or in the links um, for people? Yeah. So um, you can learn more about what we do. You can go to pivotaladvisors.com, but but we help them in a few different ways. If I'm dealing directly with a sales leader, we actually sit in and we give them a structure for having conversations. We give them, uh, here's what a good scorecard looks like. What does your scorecard look like? Let's adapt this. We'll sit in in our one-on-ones and listen to them. And when we, when the person walks out the door, we'll say, okay, how did that go? Did, did we address their performance issue? Do they have specific direction on what to do? Did we give them some things to work on? Um, do they know they're having a problem? Here, here's my favorite. My brother always calls it, did you take the monkey? 
meaning your salesperson comes in and says, I have all these problems. And the sales leader goes, I'll fix them for you. So now all of their problems became your problems. You took the monkey. <laughs> That's a bad thing. You know, you should be working on how are you going to fix this? And here's some ideas and what are you going to do? And they, they make commitments. That's the exact same conversation the sales leader should be having with the CEO. It's another huge miss in these companies because the CEO and the sales leader say, well, we talk all the time anyway. I know what's going on. Totally. But they never talk about, are we doing against plan? Where are we going to come in for sure? What's at risk? How's the team doing? What are you working on? What are the big challenges you have? That's a formal structured conversation. And when you have that on a regular basis and don't blow it off because we're busy or we got other stuff going on, but we have that on a weekly or biweekly basis where the sales leader and the, the owner stay really aligned and we can discuss what's going on. We have a much better view of what's coming in. We're more consistent. We're more predictable, which every sales and the owner in the world wants. They want to know what's going on with their cash. If we have that structured conversation and we make adjustments together, that's that's a key to having a healthy sales. Yeah. It, and, and like when you and I were sitting on with coffee about a month ago, we were talking about how the strategic plan that should be marched, marching towards evaluation and towards a multiple, like yeah. on the road, say, okay, now what is our, like how sales and finance collaborate together saying, okay, like if you actually did a roll up budget, the yep. 12 month budget, and then a one, three and five year out projections, you say, okay, here's the forecast. So if we're going to hit 10 million in revenue, here's the, here's the makeup of it, products and services, here's the gross profit. And so then the CFO and then the sales leader should say, okay, now that then trickles down into the W2 income that you yep. say, I mean, it all should roll up. And like you said, it can't just be, we're just having fun and chatting a lot because if the right. owner doesn't hold, if the finance team doesn't hold the salespeople accountable, like then how right. you, you might not have enough money to pay for your bills. Right? Yeah. And, and too often I hear a sales leader say things like, uh, well, I give them all the reports you should be able to go through and you know see what we're doing. But if you look at all the reports and everything's the pipeline, you can have a $10 million uh, a year company and the pipeline says we're going to do 43 million this quarter. No, you know, what's real, what's not real. That's mm-hmm. your job as a sales leader to communicate that to the owner, to finance, to everybody else. So again, uh, back to your original question, you know, how, how do we help these guys? Is We'll sit with the sales leader. We'll help them build out this stuff. We'll help them be a better sales leader. And how do you leverage all this? Sometimes our clients are what you just said. The CEO has been trying to manage the team and they have a day job. You know, they got to run the business and they got to do everything else. And they realize that they're not doing a stellar job as a sales leader. We actually insert one of our people in there and act as the sales leader as a fra- on a fractional basis. And then um, for anybody interested too, we also have uh, a peer group just for sales leaders. So once a month they get together, they learn best practices around hiring or onboarding or interviewing or implementing sales process or CRM or whatever it happens to be. But they learn best practices. They can apply them, we get tools online, and then we assign them a coach so we can help answer questions and help them do stuff. So we, we try to work with them in a various different ways, depending on where they're at. It's awesome. I mean, you're actually being a resource for people that instead of just trying to <laughs> figure it all on your own. Yeah. What's the best way to get to learn with from you? all my mistakes in the past? Yeah, right. Exactly. Started. That's the whole point, right? That's right. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, pivotaladvisors.com is our website. Uh, you can send me an email if you like to at gbron at pivotaladvisors.com. Um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, I'm at gdbron11. Uh, on LinkedIn, I'm on all the social media channels. We'll put all the, we'll put all the links into the show notes and it's been a blast having you on the show, Gary. Always late talking to another sales guy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, if sales has always been something that you've been terrified with about how to hire and how to build out, how to manage the department, hopefully that was able to give you some actionable advice on how to start chipping away and building a department or a division of people that can help you obtain your goal. I highly recommend that you take some devoted time to understanding what a sales division and department could look like in your company because a repeatable sales division with people that have systems processes, the right KPIs, the right comp plans can literally fuel the fire to get you to your goal of an EBITDA that you want with a value that you have desired and then it makes it more sustainable, predictable, and transferable to anybody else and or more fun to own. If you have more questions about this, I really suggest that you check out our two-day growth and exit bootcamp, which will explain based on the two case studies how to grow a valuable company, give you freedom and choices to understand when and how to exit by understanding how valuations work and all the different exit options work so that way you can help yourself either own a very fun, valuable company or transition it to someone that has the same vision and hits all your personal drivers. So with that being said, I hope you enjoyed the episode and I will see you next week.